The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. It says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the chance to get together and be with friends and family and people that we love. Thank you for this community and a place to hear your word. I pray over our time um, this morning hearing from Pastor Randall, God, would you fill him with your wisdom, your words, your Holy Spirit to preach the truth to us in a challenging passage, Lord. So thanks for today, and we give you ourselves and pray that we would listen, obey, and obey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're good. Yeah, just put it right here. Thank you, Lauren. All right. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Um, just want to welcome you if this is your first time here. Um, aren't you glad you came to church today? Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> first Corinthians 6. Um, it was great to be at the men's retreat last night. I just want to give a shout out to uh, Ryan, Ethan, uh, Eric. I see you over there. Doug Worth. Uh, here's the thing. Um, they're the ones who planned the whole thing. So uh, I just want to give it up for those guys real quick. Great job. Um, you know, one of the, the values of our church is that it's, it's not built on one person, uh, uh, but it's many of us coming together, worshiping the one person that matters, Jesus. And so I just saw that happening in the men's retreat uh, this weekend, and it was an awesome time. And so if you're not signed up for the women's retreat, we do have some space available, and so make sure you do that. So uh, we just wrapped up a series in the book of Daniel, and uh, Daniel uh, was talking about specific uh, idols within the culture, Um, and so we were talking about just what does it look like to be just influenced by the culture so much, um, but uh, you, you start to become like it, but how Daniel was distinct within his own culture. And so uh, to follow up with our series, uh, as we talked about Daniel, uh, we're going to be looking just three weeks um, about this idea of counterfeit gods, counterfeit gods, Uh, these gods that can come into our life that we think is we can worship and we can say, this is what's going to make my life fulfilled and happy uh, besides the one true God. Um, And so... To go along with that, if you want to, I've got a book called Counterfeit Gods uh, by Timothy Keller. If you want to come, 
you can grab this afterwards. But again, the promise, you got to come talk to me, okay? And so it'll be up here. You can grab this for free. If you'd like to read this, read more about it. Um, and then also the meaning of marriage to go along with this talk specifically uh, today, which I think could be a, another helpful thing. Now, this Counterfeit God series, I think, is very much like going to the dentist. Um, I went to the dentist this past week, and I forgot how much I hate the dentist. You know, I'm, I'm going in, and I'm thinking to myself, like, how much have I been flossing recently? How much have I been, like, you know, like, did I get all of those areas in my, you know, I'm just, like, thinking, like, okay, did I do a good job? And, um, and then I get in there and you're like, oh man, this is, this is bad. You know, you just kind of feel them cleaning different parts of your teeth, like, ah, open wide, open wide. And so it's like that type of thing, you know, oh, hold still. That's how this Counterfeit God series can feel. Because we're looking at this church in Corinth, which they had a lot of problems. They had a lot of issues. And so as we look at the Counterfeit God series, we're going to be looking at this church in Corinth in three specific areas. Um, and the areas are sex, power, and money. Because as we wrap up the book of Daniel, we've got to talk about these areas specifically uh, to see how distinctly Christians are called to live. And so 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20 is our passage today. The message is the empty promises of sex. The empty promises of sex. And so over the next three weeks, we'll be looking at these distinct passages in 1 Corinthians, um, and specifically the areas that the Bible calls idolatry. Idolatry. Now, we're going to be looking at this topic of sex, but before we do that, what is idolatry? Well, a good working definition here is from Timothy Keller. He says, an idol is anything more fundamental than God to our happiness, meaning in life, and identity. It is making a good thing into an ultimate thing. Idolatry is the inordinate desire of even something good. Idols are not only personal and individual, they're also corporate and cultural. See, idols are taking a good thing and making it a God thing. And God's word tells us that God created sex as good, but used in the context of idolatry will leave us hollow and empty inside. There are empty promises. So how can sex become an idol today? Well, Carl Truman in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, says this. No one today needs to be told that a movie with the title The 40-Year-Old Virgin is a comedy. The very idea of someone reaching the age of 40 with no experience of sexual intercourse is inherently comic because of the value society now places on sex. To be sexually inactive is to be less than whole, a whole person, uh, to be obviously unfulfilled or weird. The old sexual codes of celibacy outside of marriage, so not having sex outside of marriage, or the chastity within it, that, that it is in the confines of marriage, are considered ridiculous and oppressive, and their advocates wicked or stupid or both. The sexual revolution is truly a revolution in that it has turned the moral world upside down. Now, how did we get here as a society? Well, it's, it's a long journey and a long path that we've taken, but Charles Taylor says today, um, 
there's, we've experienced a shift in the way we view the world. He says one way that we used to view it was mimetic and the other is poesis. And he says a mimetic view regards the world as having a given order and given meaning and thus sees human beings as required to discover that meaning and conform themselves to it. But a poesis view, in contrast, sees the world as raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. Created. And so as we look at the Bible, it's much different than that. See, this is what we would call a mimetic view, that we believe that there's a design and a designer and that God is the one who's given it to us as a gift. But do these ideas sound familiar? I create the rules for sex. It's my body, so no outside morality or ethical code has the right to tell me what to do. But the God of the Bible claims such authority. Somebody says, well, can't you just change that? Get with the times. Isn't the Bible's view of sex, marriage, gender outdated? If I say, yeah, okay, let's change, that confirms what people thought all along, that Christianity in the Bible was man's idea and that it's all right to change it when we decide it's time to change. But the answer is no. See, as Christians, we are not above God's word, but we are under God's word. See, we're not above it, but we are under it. And so the question is not, what do I think about this? The real question is, what is it that God says about sex? What is the concept of sex that is embedded in the heart of God's word in Christianity that was part of its original triumph over the world? There's a scholar, Kyle Harper. He, he's a PhD from Harvard, um, and he wrote a book, From Shame to Sin, The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity. And here's what he notes. He says, sexual morality quickly came to mark the great divide between Christians and the rest of the world. It was in this that there was a distinction from the rest of the world. I would encourage you, if you want to know more about the beginnings of Christianity and really the, the, the beliefs behind this, this is somebody who is not claimed to be a Christian but is, has wrote this as a historical piece. I encourage you to look for that book, From Shame to Sin, the Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity. Now, I do want to give a pastor preface to this. Today, we'll touch on the, these topics. Yes, sex, marriage. It's not going to be exhaustive. But as a pastor, I do not take this lightly. I know it possibly brings up, for some of us, deep wounds. These wounds could be self-inflicted wounds or also wounds inflicted by others upon us. And also... We think of those that we love, right? Family and friends who've been hurt in the process. And I want to say that the church has not always done a good job of helping people, of walking the people through this in a loving, caring, compassionate way. Recently, I was sitting with a friend and he was telling me about someone he knows 
who went to a pastor and courageously told them, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. And this pastor looked at them, had them follow them to the door, and said, don't come back again. Do I want... There are some of you who've had terrible experiences within the church. And I want to say I'm sorry that that has happened and that that's wrong and that's sinful. What that pastor did was wrong and the experiences that people have and not listening and helping them through to get to a place where there can be freedom in the gospel because we believe that there's transformation and power within the gospel and within God's word, amen? But yet many times we see Christians causing more wounds, more hurt, more pain than actually bringing healing in Jesus' name. I want you to know that I prayerfully and uh, with care and concern for you want to share the truth of the gospel in a way where God convicts us today. And I say us, us, me included, but also brings healing in our life. See, the church hasn't been a good example either when it comes to what it says in Scripture. And so today, Jesus and his grace has the power to overcome our past, our present, and give hope for the future. So I want to approach this with a gospel lens and remind us all that it is level ground at the foot of the cross. Amen? It is level ground at the foot of the cross. Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say, I have kept my heart pure? I am clean and without sin. The Bible itself says that there's no one who can say that. Ian DeGid says, With enough trouble, someone could be kept pure on the outside, but no one is pure on the inside. Jesus is our perfect substitute. His purity is complete inside and out. He has lived the perfect life here on earth for us. In Jesus, we have been given the purity of heart we need. That's what the Christian message is all about, finding our purity, our righteousness in what Jesus has done, not in what we do. That is the freedom of the gospel today, friends. Not in what we do, not in what we've done, but in what Jesus has done for us. And so I want to point, that to, point you to that again and again as we work through this passage together. See, in the area of purity in all of life, we cling tightly to Jesus and his work for us as we look at this passage. I also want to give a special note to those who are single today. Uh, Stanley Haravas, who's a scholar at Duke University, says one of the clearest differences between Christianity and all other uh, religions was Christianity's idea of singleness as a way of life for its followers. Both Paul and Jesus, who were both single and celibate, say some people will choose not to be married and that's a good thing. This was revolutionary in the ancient societies and the implications have seldom been appreciated in the church today. Since Jesus and Paul, it broke absolute necessity of the family. Now creating a family is not something we had to do. Christianity was amazingly unique in saying, yes, it's good to be single. 
And so what are the empty promises of sex and how can we live for God in all areas of life? Our text today is 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. And just to give some context here, Paul is speaking specifically to Christians. To Christians. And so with that, I want to say these are not proof texts for Christians to go purify the world or people who don't believe in Christ. This isn't Bible thumping time. But this is saying these are for those who have accepted faith in Jesus. So I want you to know that today if you are exploring what it means to be a Christian, you have not made that faith claim yet, I want you to know this is a safe place to look for Christ. See, these commands are for Christians to be holy as God is holy. But these texts also give us a glimpse into why many are struggling both inside and outside the church with the consequences that sin produces. See, the Bible talks about sex like fire. And basically, if sex is like fire, fire is good where? In a fireplace, right? But if it gets out of the fireplace, there can do, it can do some damage, and so that's how the Bible describes sex. And so what are the empty promises of sex and how can we live free from the idol of this? Well, Paul calls his listeners to three things that we see in today's text. Number one, resist cultural norms. Number two, discern God's design. Number three, surrender the key. Resist cultural norms, discern God's design, surrender the key. And in this, we will cover the empty promises along the way. So the first one is resist cultural norms. Look at verses 12 through 13. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. First, let's look at verse 12. I have the right to do anything you say. Now, what's happening here? Well, the Corinthian church has adopted the cultural argument of the day for sex and combined it with the freedom that they have in Christ. They've adopted this idea that their body doesn't really matter. Whatever they do with their bodies really doesn't matter. God saved me anyway, right? I have the right to do anything. Next, look at verse 13. You say food for the stomach and stomach for, the food, or for food, and God will destroy them both. Basically, they've boiled down sex to it's just an appetite, just like food. And basically, if you don't fulfill this need, then you could die, which we know isn't true. It's kind of a silly argument, right? But that's what they were believing. See, what I do with my body really doesn't matter. And so as we look at what the Corinthian church was believing, what is it, what, what, did, what do we believe today? What's the argument today? Well, again, Carl R. Truman, which I would encourage you if you want to really dive down deep into this, 
read his book on this, but he says, while sex may be presented today as a little more than recreational activity, sexuality is presented as that which lies at the very heart of what it means to be an authentic person. That is profound, a profound claim that is arguably unprecedented in history. Unprecedented in history. So basically, what he's saying is that when we say we have any of these sexual urges, that that's who I really am, and that's my identity. That's my identity. But what God's word says is that that's actually not true, that you are much more than your sexuality, that your identity is much bigger and grander than that little part of your life. See, where does this idea of sexuality begin when it comes to thinking that it's our identity? Again, it's complex, and there's a a long list of reasons for its dating back to the Enlightenment, uh, which Truman documents well in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. But the influence of thinkers like Sigmund Freud, Rousseau, Nietzsche, uh, Dali, Hugh Hefner have greatly influenced our thinking today, all of which are not in alignment with the teachings of Jesus. They're not in alignment with the teachings of Jesus. And so for us, we have to start to think back and say, well, why do I believe some of the things that I believe? And do they align with what this says? See, our culture says I have the right to do anything. Pornography is no big deal. Sex is just an appetite. Sex shouldn't have any restrictions. Marriage is passe. Divorce is no big deal. Marriage is how I define it. And my sex is my choice. At the root of all of those ideas, it's me, 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 me. I'm the one who decides. I'm the one who defines. Again, a mimetic view versus a poesis view. But what does a mimetic view look like? Well, the word uh, in verse 13 for sexual immorality is the word porneia. Um, And it's a very broad word that uh, the word specifically talks about actions, acting upon these things. To clarify, um, there's a difference between temptation and actively living in sin. Temptation. Okay, focus on the family. It had a really good description here. It says this. uh, To be human is to have disordered sexuality. You do, I do, everyone does. We all have some manner of sexual drive that compels us to disobey God's design for sexuality. But while temptation is universal, it's different from sin. Scripture tells us that Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, but did not sin. Hebrews 4.15. Sexual sin is giving in to that desire in either mind or body. Faithful Christian discipleship cannot avoid temptation, but it strives to resist and master it with God's help. Doing so is not sin, but obedience and dependence upon Christ. So again, if there's a struggle, if you're facing this and you're saying, man, I'm being tempted in this direction, it's very different from saying this is who I am. This is how I'm gonna live. These are the choices I'm gonna make and I'm gonna act on those. (sighs) Rebecca McLaughlin, who, who wrote a book, The Secular Creed, is very helpful in all of this as well. And I would commend that book to you. But she's a PhD from Cambridge. 
And she's done a lot of research on this. And she says, in the Old Testament, as we have seen, God's relationship with his people is pictured as a marriage and worshiping other gods as as infidelity. Idolatry equals infidelity, or adultery, or idolatry equals, idolatry equals adultery. In Romans 1, 21 through 27, Paul sticks with his theme, weaving between idolatry and sexual sin, and arguing that sexual immorality in general and homosexual relations in particular are a consequence of people turning from God. This does not mean that individuals uh, who experience same-sex attraction results uh, from rejecting God. Most Christians struggle at times with attractions that, if followed, would lead them into sexual sin. In this respect, we're all in the same boat. But if the faithful one flesh union of a man and woman pictures Christ's marriage to his church, any sexual relationship outside that model pictures idolatry. Kyle Harper, again, who did research on this from shame to sin. Says for historians, any hermeneutical roundabout that tries to sanitize or soften Paul's words is liable to obscure the inflection point around which attitudes towards same sex erotics, but also outside of the, the context of marriage, would be forever altered. Okay, and so again, if we try to say, like, okay, I'm gonna start to do theology that's not in alignment with church history, we get ourselves into a lot of trouble. What does God's word say? We're all in the same boat. We're all guilty. That's what it says. And so let's look again at Paul's response in verses 12 through 13. He says, not a beneficial, but to not be mastered by anything. So here's what he says. He says, the the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. What is the Apostle Paul doing? He's getting them to, number one, question their instincts. To question their instincts. But number two, ask what is better. First one, question their instincts. So let's go back to this idea of pornography. Today, we're told, well, it's just a part of our natural instincts. And that's fine. It's okay. It's permissible. In 2011, there was a sociologist, uh, Mark uh, Regeneris, uh, Regeneris, and Jeremy Euchre, uh, and they put out this important book called Premarital Sex in America. And it breaks down lies we believed and shows scientifically how they're not true. And one of them is uh, in the area of pornography. They say pornography won't affect your relationships is what it says. And here's what they counter with, with research. They say pornography now affects virtually everyone's relationships. They state three empirical reasons. They say, first, people who use pornography have crushingly unrealistic expectations about what a love partner or marriage partner must look like and how they must perform. Second, they say a significant number of males experience a diminished tolerance for the difficulties of real relationships, and it shrinks the marriage pool for women. And they say studies have proven that men who use pornography are far less interested and willing to get into the messiness of real relationships. Thirdly, they argue women are increasingly being forced to accommodate behavior and appearance to the image and style of pornography. Do you see how it has affected our culture? And so we ask, what is better? Right, because he says, okay, 
It's not beneficial. What, what is profitable? What is good? What does that mean? He says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. There is a design. There is a designer. Again, Rebecca McLaughlin says, commitment-free sex is a poisoned chalice. Stable marriage correlates with mental and physical health benefits for both men and women. Multiple studies have shown that for women in particular, increasing our number of sexual partners correlates with worse mental health, including higher levels of sadness, suicidal ideation, depression, and drug abuse. Our heart should break because of sin. And so we need to discern God's design. Look at verses 14 through 17. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. What he's saying is that many times in our culture, in our lives, we have a very low view of sex. And what God's design is, is he says it's actually way higher than you could have ever dreamed it would be. And he says, let me show you how. He says, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. See, we need a raised view of what holiness looks like, of what God's design looks like. Why does he talk here about prostitution? Well, Kevin DeYoung talks about this culture in particular. He says, prostitution was part of the official public face of Roman life. Not something hidden or in the background. Prostitution was considered a social necessity, an important safety valve. Rome in the fourth century had no fewer than 45 public brothels. It was thought that if you remove prostitutes from civic life, you would overturn the whole social order and lust would conquer. Friends, one of the places that we help at is generate hope. And the reason we say sex trafficking, they're survivors of sex trafficking, is because we need to see the realities of the damage that's done to human lives. We don't want to avoid that. We don't want to turn away from that. But we want to see that there is damage that's done that there are women that are, are healing because of this. See, in the Roman culture, it didn't matter. But if we look at our own society and culture today and we drive down the street, we probably see a strip club or something like that where it's happening every day. Does that reflect God's design? No. See, what is God's design? Well, it's beautiful. And it's all the way back in Genesis 2. See, in Genesis 2, 23 through 25, we get a glimpse of the first wedding and really the, the heart behind what marriage and sexuality were intended to be. See, the Christian ethic is that sex is a beautiful gift from God that is meant to be within the confines of marriage between a husband and a wife. Why? Because in verse 23 in Genesis 2, it says that there is a permanency that happens. That, that marriage is a glue or, or sex is a glue within marriage. See, in, in Genesis 2, 23, it says, Then man said, This is at, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There was a, there, there was a permanence that was there, but also a sacrifice. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and shall become one flesh. One flesh. Verse 25, there's a vulnerability. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We're not ashamed. See, why is there so much shame attached to sex in our, our life and culture today? It's because in many ways, as we dismiss God's design, we see that there's something deeper, there's something much deeper to all of it. Sex is not just physical, it's meant to be emotional, spiritual, mental, everything. See, it's vulnerability at the deepest level of our being. It's, it's meant to be a complete sacrificial giving of oneself to another. It's holistic in every single way. That is God's design. That is the beauty that God has made it for. I remember the first time I heard the Christian sex ethic, I wasn't a Christian. I was told it by a friend. And he was talking to me and he, he was sharing with me that he wasn't gonna have sex till he's married. I'm like, dude, you, are you from a different planet? What are, you, what are you thinking? What are you talking about? But as I started to think about it more, you know, I was like, man, even, I'm like, I don't know about all this God stuff, but I was like, that actually kind of makes sense. See, I want you to imagine going on a date and then somebody, you know, uh, leaning over at the end of the date and saying this, do you want to go back to my place and combine bank accounts? You would look at them and be like, you are like the craziest person. What are you talking about? Do I want to combine bank accounts? But if we think that that's crazy, then why would we not think that it's crazy to go back and say, okay, I'm going to become one with you? See, because that's what sex was meant for. It is a whole giving of yourself to another person. And that's why God designed it in the context of marriage. See, where is the one place you can be safe enough to be vulnerable at every level? Safe. We're talking about safety here. At every level, it's in a permanent covenant relationship. A relationship where you're not a means to an end, but a lifelong best friend. See, the Hebrew liter wisdom literature in Proverbs 2.17 refers to a person's spouse as their aloop. It's a word that can be translated best friend. One of the things with my wife, we kind of we started it jokingly, but then it just kind of, whenever I answer the phone or text her, I say, how you doing, good buddy? That's God's design. She's my loop. And so the last point is to surrender the key. Verses 18 through 20, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. 
Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. What is Paul doing in this whole passage? He's pleading with the people. He's preaching. He's passionately preaching. He's pleading with them like, don't you know these things? Don't you know how, how holy these things are? Don't you know how valuable you are? See, because the cultural sex ethic then is, and now is this, I belong to myself. I got to look out for myself. But the Christian sex ethic is this, I belong to Christ. He's my protector. He's my provider. He's the one I look to. See, to be a Christian is to invite Christ into your whole life. See, for some of us, we think, oh, well, I've got this private world. Nobody can go. We talked about it this weekend at the men's retreat. See, there is no private life with Christ. There is no private world with Christ. You hand over the key and you say, you have permission to any place in my life. If you were to think of your life like a home, you were to say, okay, Christ, you have the key to my life. You are invited in, but you can't look over here. Yeah, don't go in that area over there, Jesus. You know what the thing about God? God will say, oh, what, what are you trying to hide over there? Let me go over there real quick. Because what does he do? He cleans up the mess. He fixes the hurt. He fixes the pain. That's what God does. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't run from it. He says, that's going on in your life. I, I, want, I, want, I want to see you healed. I want to see you better. I want to see you whole. I don't want to leave you in this position, in this place. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? See, there are things, there, and you know this, because you sense that if you're a Christian where there's a pull and there's a temptation to go in a certain direction and there's a God that lives inside of you that says, don't go there. Don't do it. Why? Because God is protecting you, because God cares for you, because the living God lives in your life. And he knows the damage that's on the other side of that. See, when we say we belong to Christ, he says this, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. See, today, if, if, if you think this is just about giving up your sexuality today, I've done a poor job and you've misunderstood me. It's actually much more. Jesus' call is to give up your life. To give up your life. Not just parts of your life, but your whole life. That's the call to be a Christian. You say, well, why? We're not our own. We were bought at a price. The gospel is that we believe that Jesus, who lived the perfect life, was fully tempted yet sinless, died for our sins, every sin, not only our sins, but the sins of the world, so that he could purchase a new life for us. 
A life free from sin, free from bondage, free from our past hurts and pains, a forgiveness and hope for tomorrow. That's the gospel. That's the invitation. And it can be scary. Because sometimes you don't know who to open up to and to say, okay, here's what's going on. Here's what's happened. Here's my life. I'm not going to hide any longer. You don't know who to because sometimes there's people that will dismiss you and say, well, figure it out on your own. But I encourage you, come to Jesus. Start with Jesus. Know that Christ cares for you. So some takeaways as we wrap up. How can we live free from the idol of sex? We'll ask these three questions. The first one is this. Where will I find my identity? Where will I find my identity? One pastor that I appreciate is Sam Alberry. Sam Alberry is a single man who has struggled with same-sex attraction since he was a young boy. And he has lived with a view like we talked about today, the Christian sex ethic. And he came before other leaders, other pastors. And he asked them, he said this, he says, if the gospel is good news, how is the Christian sex ethic good news? He says, how is it good news? How? And here's what his conclusion was for himself. He says this, he says, my primary sense of worth and fulfillment as a human being is not contingent on being romantically or sexually fulfilled. And this is liberating. The most fully human and complete person who has ever lived was Jesus Christ. He never married, he was never in a romantic relationship and never had sex. If we say these things are intrinsic to human fulfillment, we are calling our savior subhuman. He says, that's how I make it through the day. It's looking to Jesus Christ. So where will I find my identity? And could I find it in Christ? The second is this. What will I be ruled by? C.S. Lewis says it plainly, and I love this. He just says it. He says, chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. There is no getting away from it. The old Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Chastity is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct, as it now is, has gone wrong. That's basically it. He says, okay, it's like either Christianity is wrong or I'm wrong. That's the only choices we're left with. And so what will we be ruled by? But the last one is this. Who will I run to for help? Who will I run to for help? This was helpful from Nate Larkin. He says, I spent years begging God for a private solution to my private problem. You ever been there? I need a private solution, Lord. I don't need anybody to know this private solution he says I am a colossal failure as a solo disciple for the very simple reason that Jesus doesn't have any solo disciples he doesn't have any solo disciples 
We walk through this together. It says, confess your sins to one another so that we may be healed. You know, the context of all this, it's all about the kingdom of God. And we know that there's a king that came from heaven to earth, lived the perfect life, died the death that we deserved, and paid for the punishment that we deserve. I didn't read this passage at the beginning, but at the end, because this is what the Apostle Paul says. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's what he's saying. He's like, I'm going to put it all out there, and I'm going to keep putting it all out there, and I'm going to be very open about this because we're all in that category. We are all in there. Every one of us. And he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. What he's saying is you can hold on to your identity and say this is what I am, this is who I am. Or he said you can let that go and hold on to Jesus this is who I am. This is who I live for. He's the one that saved me, washed me clean. And I'm not perfect and I'm on that journey right now, but Lord Jesus, help me every single day to live free from the idol that's all around me. Freedom is found in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you, we thank you for your word. We pray that you help us, Lord, to understand there are many struggles, many pains, many hurts, Lord, that you know, you know them. And this topic specifically brings up many things. And so, Lord, I just pray that you minister to us now. You minister to our hearts, you minister to, to our struggles that no longer do we live this private life, but we invite you, Jesus, into all areas of our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.